Thank you for being with us here today. It's a joy and a privilege that I have to be speaking with you today for what is the penultimate message in what will likely be the longest ever series we have ever done at C3. Um, if you're just joining us today, let me catch you up. We're um, going through the Apostles' Creed, which is uh, a historical document. It's, a, it's an ancient statement of belief set out by the, the early church that sort of lays the foundation for the Christian faith. And we've been doing this because when we connect to this historical document, just because it's historical doesn't mean it's no longer relevant. You see, when we do this, it connects us with exactly the same fundamental beliefs that have always existed in the Christian faith. Because the way we do church now, it may look a little bit different. I mean, this may not be how they might have done things several thousand years ago, but we believe exactly the same thing. The methods changed, the message remains the same. And we've been taking our time through this because each of these statements, we've been going one by one, although maybe small, just a few words, has such theological significance that we need to take the time to give them the space that they deserve and to understand them because they are so foundational to what we believe. And so here we are, almost in the final week of this series, as we look at the statement that we believe in the resurrection of the body. I hope it's not too soon to use phrases like almost in the final, um, particularly after this week's event. Of course, if, you, if it's passed you by, and hopefully you've been caught up already today, today is, of course, the final of the World Cup, which England sadly missed out by their crushing defeat this week. It's, it's, a, it's a sad time. It's such a sad time. But, you know, one day it will happen. Football will come home. It's getting stuck probably in France. But... Uh, one day it will, it will come back to its home. But much like the game on Wednesday night, this will be a message of two halves. Hopefully it's not going to be a message that starts off well and has a tragic ending. But we will be doing things very differently in the first half and the second half. And what do I mean by that? Well, I want us to take some time to really explore what the Bible has to say about the resurrection of the body and what we can expect from eternity. But then I want us to hone in on what that means for us right now. Because we don't want to be people who are, you may have heard this phrase, so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. It's an old phrase, but I believe actually the contrary is true if we do it right. The more heavenly minded we become, the more earthly good we can be. And so after we've looked at what we can expect from that, I want us to dive in and look at, well, how does this apply right now? Because I believe if you read this book, the Bible, the overwhelming narrative isn't about us going to heaven, it's about heaven coming to earth. God's great story isn't that Jesus came to die for you necessarily, it's that he came to live with you, in you, and through you to transform this world now and to be prepared for the eternity to come. So as we consider the hope of what's to come, we need to allow it to impact the way we live every day now. It's worth pointing out before we dive in that this topic today could easily be the subject of an entire message series. Um, and so I just want to let you know that we're obviously not going to be able to cover absolutely everything. You know, I want to stick to time today because we all know how dangerous extra time can be. Uh, that'll be the last one. I, I, <laughs> I promise. <laughs> but um, there's obviously a whole bunch of things we won't be able to cover. But if this kind of topic interests you and you want to study further, I can recommend a couple of resources to you. Um, first of all, I mean, I said that 
you could do a whole message series on this. In fact, as part of my preparation, among other things, uh, there was one message series in particular that stood out. It's called Life After Life by Dave Smith. It was a fantastic series. And if you can get your hands on it uh, alongside that series, I don't know if it's available online, he did a two-hour seminar um, around the end times controversies. And I'd really recommend that if it's the kind of thing that interests you, because I've yet to hear someone uh, teach on that so faithfully in a balanced way. So he presents all the varying and competing views uh, in a really balanced way without trying to color them or influence them too much with his own personal view. And it's a very, very good resource. Um, that series uh, also references a book which I, th I would also recommend to you by N.T. Wright called Surprised by Hope. But, um, so that's if you want to go a little bit deeper. Anything else, come chat to me. I can recommend you some other things as well. But uh, the key thing is this. There is more to life than just this life. This is the foundational part of the Christian hope. If you've got your uh, Bibles, uh, you might want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we'll be spending quite a lot of time in this chapter today. But just highlighting verse 19 to start with, Paul writes, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. We should be pitied, if that's all there is. If Jesus only came to influence this life right now, we should be pitied. But we know, and we've read already, the hope in Christ that we have is not just for this life. Death is not the end. And because of the work that Jesus has done on the cross, death has no victory. It has no sting. It has been defeated through the work and the power of the cross. And in the last few weeks, even as I've been preparing this message, it's been a timely reminder for me because Sadly, uh, my grandmother passed away. Uh, it was just over a week ago now that uh, sh she died. and um, She was an amazing lady. She lived a, a life full of love, and she was a woman for whom we as a family were so grateful. And she died at, at the old age of, of 96. And Thankfully, she died. Her passing was very peaceful, pretty painless. But there's no mistaking that it always comes as a loss to us. It always feels like a time of of sorrow, and it feels like there's now a little gap in our family where there once was this wonderful woman. She's, she's no longer there. But as I've been preparing this, it was a reminder to me that because of her faith in Jesus, our loss is her gain. Like we no longer have the joy of spending time in her presence, but she has the joy of spending eternity in the presence of her God. No longer in pain, no longer suffering. She has been freed from her frail and failing body. And this, for the believer, is the promise that we have. Isn't that amazing? That should we die before Jesus returns, we will go instantly to be with God. And this was the assurance that Jesus was even able to offer the thief that was dying on the cross next to him. In such a moment of excruciating pain as he was being executed, I don't know about you, if I was in that moment, I'd be pretty self-absorbed. But even in, right in that moment, he was able to reach out to the person to his right who was also being executed. The one who had recognized him correctly as the son of God and give him this assurance. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And then in verse 46, just a couple of verses later, we read in Luke, Jesus calls out to heaven. He says, Father, into my hands. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died. When we die, if we believe in Jesus, there's an instant separation of the body and the spirit. And our spirit goes to be 
with God. We are united with our creator. Death is not the end. But what happens then? You know, do we just continue to float around as, as disembodied beings in some sort of spiritual realm for eternity? Do we, like as the old paintings and cultural references suggest, would we sit around on clouds playing harps all day, every day, forever? I mean, I don't know about you, if, if that was all that eternity had in store for me, I, I'd be more grateful if death were the end myself. <laughs> but I've got good news for you. This is not where the story ends. In fact, this is barely where the story begins. This is just an intermediate state. When we die, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. But you see, our culture is so interested in, in what happens after we die, we kind of stop at this point. We kind of get so obsessed with what happens like, after death. We're interested in life after death. But the New Testament, I would say, is more concerned with what N.T. Wright calls life after, life after death. Life after, life after death. And if you read the Revelation 20 and 21, and, and if you haven't, why not? That is the end of the book. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know, maybe you're one of those people. My wife, she reads the end of the book, start, starts with the end of the book, and then she reads as much as she feels she needs to of the remainder of the book to fill in the gaps. I, I wouldn't recommend that with the Bible. Um, I also don't recommend reading the end of the book before the middle of the book. But in this case, if you're saving the end of the book because you haven't made it all the way through the Bible yet, just go and read the end. Go and read the end. It's, it's, it's fantastic. It is, it is absolutely the hope that we have. And if you haven't read it, here's the spoiler. The idea isn't that we escape earth to go and be with Jesus. It's that Jesus is coming back to establish a new or renewed heaven and earth and that we will reign with him for eternity. And that is where the exciting bit happens. See, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is coming back. Where? He's coming back here to earth. And we saw a few weeks back, we covered this section in the creed. It says, after dying, Jesus rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. He will return. And there's so much argument and speculation about the exact timings or the mechanics of it all. But the end result is pretty clear. is that there will be a new or renewed heaven and earth and that God's dwelling place will once again be among the people. It says in Revelation, it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. What an amazing hope we have. Creation will be restored and renewed to what it was always intended to be when Jesus returns. And it's at this time the Bible teaches us that the dead when Christ will be raised, just as Jesus was raised. We were reading uh, before the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to continue reading some of that now as we study some of this text. But if we back up a few verses, he, he paints a pretty bleak picture. He says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's pretty bleak. And then he says, it also means that those who have fallen asleep, in other words, died, have, are now lost. But in verse 20, he brings it all back. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. 
For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. This is life after life after death. And that's the blank in your notes. Life after life after death. So what will this life after life after death be like? Well, we'll read on a bit further in Paul's letter. He explains, verse 35, he's answering the question himself. He says, some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or, or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. In verse 42, he says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. You see, we often say, don't we, well, well-trodden phrase, particularly in Christian circles, you reap what you sow. Like, so you sow, so shall you reap. You know, that's, we, we've heard that a lot, but surely that is only half of the story. And I think Paul sort of points to this here. Like, I, I'm no farmer, but I'm also not even a really keen gardener. I'll, I'll let you in on that secret. But I know this, if I planted a seed, I would be thoroughly disappointed if all I had at the end was a seed, right? There's an expectation that what I sow will grow and that the result of the seed will be greater than the seed itself. Take a tree, for instance, like a, a giant oak tree, some tens and maybe 100 feet high, right? Comes from a single acorn. Now, if I were to show you an acorn, you'd be like, well, that doesn't look much like a tree. Well, you'd be right. It does not look much like a tree. And yet, every tree is intrinsically connected to the acorn from which it came. There is a continuity there. When you plant the seed, or in this case, the acorn, it doesn't vanish. It is that that becomes the tree. So that on the surface, there's a discontinuity. There's clear differences. And yet, there is still a continuity. And so it will be with our resurrection bodies when Jesus returns. And Paul goes on to explain some of these marked differences between our current bodies and our resurrection bodies. In verse 42, he says, The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And then in verse 49, he, he says, And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, what does he mean by that last verse? Well, in my mind, he's saying, we already have an example of what it will be like by looking at Jesus after his resurrection, for the time he was still on earth before he went to heaven. Now, I don't think that means that we will all look like 33-year-old Jewish men, whom you'll, for which you'll be quite grateful. But I do think what it means is we can look at what Jesus did and maybe what he was able to do during the 40 days after the resurrection and the times that we have recorded for us in the Bible. So as I was preparing this message, I found a report published by Orbis Research. It was just looking at some market research, and it said that the anti-aging industry, an industry devoted entirely to staving off the effects of aging, uh, will be worth, by 2021, $331 billion. 
$331 billion. Can whole industry focus to it entirely to making us look younger than we are? Uh, and an industry that will be worth exactly zero in eternity. But I don't know about you, when I read the Bible, that seems to come through as a theme, that sometimes on earth we value the things that are not important. What we value here is temporal, but we don't often place as much value on the eternal things. But it will be worth zero. There will also be no more need for hospitals in the age to come, no need for funeral homes. We will live forever, not subject to decay or the effects of aging, unable to get sick or suffer any pain. Isn't that amazing? Some of you might be saying, well, how old will I be? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I, I don't particularly think the Bible talks about this. Maybe age will be irrelevant in eternity. I mean, maybe even measuring time in units of years will be slightly less meaningful when you have the whole of eternity. I have no idea. And I don't think the Bible is pretty clear on it. But what it is clear about is that we will be immortal and that our bodies will be imperishable. He says also that our bodies will be glorious. There's going to be something about the nature of that body, or it would even suggest even the appearance of it, that's going to be better than the one you have right now. Uh, we will be more attractive in the age to come than we are right now. Now, I know why you're laughing, because you're looking at me and thinking, how is that possible <laughs> that you could be any more attractive? But I'll tell you, it's true. The best is yet to come. Turn to the person next to you and say, you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, let's look at Jesus. In the, time he was, in the time after his resurrection, but before he went to heaven, I think we could say, if we looked at the Bible, we could say, you know, he was recognizable, right? He was recognizable. And yet, there were times where the disciples hardly recognized him. So there was something that was intrinsically him, and yet there was something different. In the same way, I believe we will still be intrinsically us, yet somehow different. There'll be continuity and discontinuity. Finally, he says that it will be a powerful and a spiritual or spirit-energized body. Because I don't want us to make the mistake here when we read about the comparison between natural and spiritual of thinking that this means we won't have a physical body. It will still be a physical body. We're not going to be angels. We're not going to be spirits or ghosts. We will have a physical body. The word spiritual here could be possibly be read as spirit energized. And we can see this because when we read in Luke 24, when Jesus appeared to his disciples, he clearly had a physical body. He appeared to them and, and frightened them because he came out of nowhere. And they said, they said to him, you know, who are you? A bit, a bit scared. And he said to them, look at my hands and my feet, attributes of a physical body. Uh, if, if, you know, hopefully not contentious. Um, it is I myself. He then encourages them. He says, touch me and see. Our ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And then it goes on to say that he even ate with them. Many of you, I can see, encouraged to hear that there will be food and eating in eternity. Uh, the reason why they were initially frightened when he appeared to them uh, and thought he was a ghost is because he just appeared to them out of nowhere in a locked room. And then we read a little bit further on that this happens again. He's on the road to Emmaus with two disciples, and then he, he sits down and eats with them. And the moment they recognize him for who he is, 
instantly vanishes. So what does that mean? Well, perhaps it suggests that although this is going to be a physical body, it will no longer be constrained by the laws of physics as it once was. I don't know exactly what that means, but if we look at Jesus, it would seem to indicate that is the case. So it's not that we will go from a physical body to a non-physical body. It's that we will go from a physical body to a, a super-physical body, a natural to a supernatural body. So let's summarize. When Jesus returns, we will be resurrected with physical bodies that will be imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual or spirit-energized. And so you might be thinking, well, what happens if you haven't died? Like, what about the people who are still alive when Jesus returns? Well, fear not, because Paul's very thorough in this letter to the Corinthians. He says in verse 51, he says, We will not all sleep, in other words, die, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, those who are still alive, will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable clothes itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. That's the promise that we have. The resurrection of the body. The promise of the life everlasting. So, with all that said, what impact does this have on the here and now? Because I'd like to think that most of us are not sitting around twiddling our thumbs waiting to die. I mean, you know, each to their own. But I'm not sitting around waiting to die. I want to live my life, my one and only life on this earth, for God. So I believe this. Knowing our eternal destiny should help us with our current reality. Knowing our eternal destiny should help us with our current reality. Now we'll take the rest of the time we have now, which is quickly fading away, um, to take a look at a couple of verses that Paul also writes to consider three ways in which the promise of the future can give us perspective for the here and the now. So firstly this, I think understanding our eternal destiny is a call for perseverance. I've, uh, I've recently taken up running now, uh, some of you are thinking, why would you do that? Yep, me too. I'd be like, I'm a big fan of sitting myself. Uh, but I took up running anyway. Um, despite my obvious and athletic physique, I'm uh, actually surprisingly unfit. Now, that's uh, not false modesty. I really, I really should stress that. I, I am incredibly un unfit. So I, I took on the Couch to 5K program. Some of you might might know the Couch to 5K program. In other words, it gets you from the couch to running 5K. It's quite simple, including the name. Uh, it was made for people like me. In fact, it was made for people more fit than me. <laughs> so it starts off in, in week one, they do this thing called interval training, where you, you walk a bit and you run a bit, and you walk a bit more, and then you run a bit more. And then over the course, you sort of slowly build up how much you're running and reduce the amount you're walking. And, and they start you off gently. Uh, I should say that because I tried the first week and failed. This is built for people who have zero fitness. So the idea is you're supposed to run for one minute and walk for one and a half minutes. Five times in a row. Yeah, couldn't do it. Um, so embarrassing as that was, I, I've, I decided it is time for a change. 
I, I don't mind how unfit I am now, but I am determined to become more fit than I am now in the future. But with every change comes a challenge. And many of us here will know growth is not always glamorous. There is nothing pretty about the way I run. I want to tell you that now. I don't want you to like stalk me. I don't want you, I'm not going to tell you where I live or the nights I go out running. Uh, because there is nothing pretty about it. You know, there are some people they run, you know, they seem to do it with this grace and elegance. You know, they're like, you know, they're, you know, they're having a chat with someone next to them. They, you know, they're like on their phone still running. They're running miles and miles, hardly breaking a sweat, floating around. I hate those people. Smug. I don't hate them. I strongly dislike them with the love of Jesus. But I, I'm determined to be one of those people. And I, I will do it. See, when I run, it looks like I'm about to die. Like, like I'm being chased by an angry bear. I'm like, <sighs> and I get home, and I like fall on the floor, and I don't get up for about half an hour. And then when I do get up, there's like a human-shaped sweat puddle. Yeah, yeah, it's too much information. It's fine. Okay, we can move on. We'll move on. But it's only through pushing through these times of discomfort that will ever enable me to go further or faster the next time. Right? If we always do what's easy, we'll only ever do what's easy. Or as another saying goes, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. We have to persevere. And Hebrews 12 is one of those famous texts which calls us to that perseverance. It says this, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Sometimes it's, it's not actually the obvious things that hold you back. Um, as I said, I've only been running a, f a few months, but uh, I found something fascinating to be true. So for me, anyway, when, when I've gone out running, I've got past the point where I can't run beyond the end of my street, you were pleased to know. Uh, I'm beyond the one and a half minutes of running. And I'm currently at 33 minutes. Thank you. I know there's a couple of marathon runners in the room looking at me going, Pfft. <laughs> fool. Um, one day, one day I'll get there. But anyway, I'm, I'm running now. So I've got beyond that point where I, I can't run at all. And, but something fascinating happened. I'm currently at a point when I stop running, like when I, I genuinely can't go any further, it's no longer because of the pain in the muscles of my legs or the aching. It's also no longer because of the pain in my chest or the shortness of breath. I'm actually having to stop because the pain in my shoulders has become so unbearable that I have to stop running. My shoulders. Right? I can see some of you look at me funny, like, you're doing it wrong. Like, yeah, I know that. I'm like all arms. And like, you know, I know I'm doing it wrong. That, but that's my point, you see. It's not the lack of running that's stopping me persevering. It's that I'm running badly. And I needed to correct my posture. I needed to change something that was less obvious. And I sometimes believe that that's the case in our spiritual life. You see, sometimes we focus on the obvious things. Like, oh, have I got enough belief? And do I have enough faith? And am I praying enough? But I wonder if sometimes they're not the things that stop us from persevering, that erode our determination. Maybe it won't be a lack of belief. Maybe instead it will be an abundance of bitterness in your life. Maybe it won't be because we don't have enough faith. Maybe it's because we have too much unforgiveness. I mean, you might have a life that's full of prayer, but if it's full of pride, that's going to hold you back. You see, if we're going to persevere, it's not just enough for us to run. We've got to run well and throw off those things that hinder, 
sin that so easily entangles, we need to sometimes correct our posture. Not do something different, do the same thing, but differently. Different attitude. Secondly, this. Knowing our eternal destiny helps with perspective. So when I run, embarrassingly badly as I do, there's something that keeps me going. I, I don't know, maybe all runners have this. At the point when you feel like you could stop, you want to let yourself off, you've had a busy day, you've gone out for a run, you know, you've done the hard job, but you get to the point where you want to stop, and you know you need to keep going. There's something I think about that helps me keep going. and people, Other runners probably have something different. But I, I, uh, I picture myself, my future self, three months down the line, six months down the line, who's like, I don't know, running, not struggling to breathe, who's one of those smug people, you know, running along. I've got a running partner. I have enough breath left that I'm able to hold a, a reasonable conversation. Uh, you know, those people. And I'm sure then I'll be the, hate, the hated person in someone else's life. But um, I'll be one of those people. And I think about the future me, looking back on the present me, who's struggling to breathe, who could barely go on. And I think what the future me will think about this moment. And I think the future me will look back and go, wow, that was tough, but it was so necessary to get me to where I am now. You see, we sometimes think no pain, no gain. Well, some of us live our lives like no pain, no pain. You know, happy, we're happy to live with that, that mantra. But it's sometimes through the hard times that we grow the most. And we can look, it sometimes requires us to take a long view to look back and say, wow, look how far I've come. Sure, I can see where I want to go, but look how far I've come. And I think that when we have confidence in the promise of our eternal situation, it can help give us perspective for our current suffering. It says in that verse we were reading, Hebrews 12, it says about Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now, I don't think the joy was the joy on the cross. I don't think that's what he was looking forward to. It was the joy after the cross. For the joy after the cross, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And as I was thinking again about Jesus, I started looking a bit more about post-resurrection Jesus and about his body, and I was thinking about his scars. See, these scars were vitally important in the post-resurrection body of Jesus. They were an indication to his disciples and to others of who he was. They were a testament to the power and the glory of God that had raised him from the dead. They were a part of showing what he'd gone through in order to win the victory that he now has. Now, I don't have a good theology on this. Maybe, maybe our resurrection bodies won't bear scars because Jesus' body did. Like Maybe he's done it so we don't have to. Or maybe they will but maybe we'll be able to look on them with a whole new set of eyes in eternity. We'll be able to look on them and say, wow, that doesn't make it right, some of the stuff I went through. It doesn't make it, like it but, it has, but it's, a, it's an important point. We look back and go, do you know what? That does not make that right, but look how far God has brought me to where I am now. Look at the power of God and the grace of God. When we're sitting there in eternity united with our Savior, we can look and say, wow, the power and the glory of God. So you may be going through something now that's tough, and it may be really tough. I don't want to be glib about this. It might be a relationship breakdown. It might be a job loss. It, it could be a health crisis. And I don't know why we have suffering in our life. I don't know why we face hardships. 
But I do know this, and I will encourage you with this, that Jesus is not waiting for you on the other side. He wants to walk with you through what you're going through every step of the way. And I want to encourage you with these words from Paul, and he writes in 2 Corinthians this time. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Far outweighs them all. Now, you might read that and think, you know what, you don't know what I'm going through. And you might think, well, you know, actually, my situation doesn't feel light right now. It certainly doesn't feel momentary. It might feel really heavy. It might feel like it's never-ending. But keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And remember that Paul also said in Romans, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's that eternal perspective helping with our current situation. Finally, focusing on our eternal promise, I believe offers us purpose. People run differently when they see the finish line. You know? They could have been going, they could have been holding the pace, just sticking around, keep going. But when they see the finish line, things change. This is true for me. When I'm like on my way back, huffing and puffing, I see my front door, things change. My front door's there, I am not stopping. There is a new and renewed sense of passion and enthusiasm, a determination to finish no matter what. That verse in Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. But in one of the old translations, the New King James Version, it says that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. You were made to finish your race. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day that Jesus returns. You were made to finish your race. Not someone else's race. The race that's been marked out for you. Because when you know it's your race, it no longer becomes about finishing first. It becomes about finishing. It no longer becomes about striving. It becomes about being faithful. There's no need for us to focus on others. Because at the end of the day, we're called to focus on our own life with God to make a personal decision to follow him and live a life for him. It's so easy for us to get thrown off course and become distracted. We can look to the left and to the right and we can see other people around us and we can think, oh, hey, look, I'm I'm further on than that person. And we become arrogant in our spirit. Or, Or we look ahead of us and like we're so so disheartened because we see someone so much further on than us and we become insecure. I want to tell you, it's not God's will for you to do either of those things. It's God's will that you should run forward and keep focused. You see, it's not about them. It's not about them. It's about you. And it's about Jesus in you and working through you. So I want to encourage us to fix our eyes not on what is seen, people around us to the left and to the right and and the things that we feel we should be doing but instead on what is unseen for what is seen is just temporary but what is unseen the Bible says is eternal and I want us to allow this knowledge of our eternity to inspire us to persevere to give us a fresh perspective and to offer us purpose we're going to worship in a moment together but before we do I just want to invite you to stand as we prepare to worship together. And I want to give us an opportunity to respond. Because we've been talking about eternity. 
And some of you, as you've been sitting here, or you're listening to this, you're thinking, I can't say that I truly have that assurance to know what my eternity has in store for me. That can change today. If you accept Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, through the work that he's done on the cross, you can have that inner assurance, that knowledge that when the end should come, you will go to be with him and you will partner with him in his great plan for eternity. And we're going to allow some opportunity to respond to that. We're going to do something very simple. And we do this quite often as a church. We give an opportunity for people to pray a prayer to commit their lives to Jesus. And it's very simple. We just, we pray, I'll pray, I'll say some words and, and the whole church will repeat those words. And if you just say them and you, you don't sort of think about it or, or, or mix it with any faith, they are just words. But if you truly believe them in your heart and you confess them with your mouth, you will be saved and your life needn't be the same ever again. And some of you may be thinking, yeah, I did that before, but I've heard this stuff about perseverance and I need to I need to realign myself. I need to throw off those things that are getting in the way and I need to run my race again with perseverance. I need to have an increased perspective from eternity and I need to run with a renewed purpose. Well, you can do that again. You can just join with us in that. It doesn't matter if you've done it the first time or maybe it's the hundredth time you've done this. Every day is a, can be a fresh start because of the glory and the mercy of Jesus. So you can join with us in that as well. And so we're going to pray now. And because this is is about your race, I want to ask that we bow our heads and close our eyes as this is a personal moment. Not a private moment, but it's personal. It's about you and God. And I'm going to say these words and I want you to repeat after me. And afterwards, we pray these. I just want you to identify yourself if you're making this commitment to return to Jesus or maybe for the very first time, just so we can give you some resource to support you in that decision. So pray these words, Lord Jesus, today I recognize that I need you. Thank you for saving me, for dying for me. Forgive me for going my own way and for all my sin. Today I choose to make you Lord and leader of my life. Thank you that because of you, death has been defeated and my eternity is secure. Today I choose to live for you, to become a Christian. Thank you for accepting me now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now just in that moment with every head bowed, every eye closed. If that was you, you're making that decision to say, yes, I want to reaffirm my commitment to Jesus. Or you're saying for the very first time, Jesus, come into my life. I want to live for you. I want you to be bold. I want you to raise your hand right in this room, in this moment. And one of the team could just put something in your hand to help you on that journey and that step of faith. It seems like such a an immediate response, the raising of the hand, how can one act that's rooted in a specific time affect our entire eternity? But that's the mystery and the hope that we have. If you want to say yes today, don't delay. I want to give a moment now, if that's you in this place, just raise your hand. On the team will give you something. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.
Father God, I just pray that we would go from here with a renewed sense of passion to run our race with perseverance, Lord, with a perspective that's given from our knowing our eternity is secure in you. And I just pray, Lord, that you would be with us every step of the way. Thank you for the work you've done for us on the cross. In Jesus' name.